I'm Mark Gagan and you're listening to a very special charity episode of the Voice of Insurance podcast, produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling enterprise-scale underwriting through a single pane of glass. Today we're going to be doing something completely different. We're not going to talk about insurance. Regular listeners will know that Advantage Go has been a great supporter of the Voice of Insurance since the early days of the podcast. But you might not have known that this excellent technology company is also an important backer of UK military charity, ABF, the Soldiers' Charity. Advantage Go is an associate sponsor of the Soldiers' Charity's annual fundraiser, the Lord Mayor's Big Curry Lunch at the Guildhall in London, which is a fixture attended and supported by many in the London insurance market. It's the Soldiers' Charity's work we want to showcase here, particularly a highly successful programme the charity funds in the field of pain management. So I'm going to introduce two services veterans, Russ Kirby and Bernadette O'Toole, who have both been through the programme. Russ is a Navy veteran and Bernie was in the Army. You will be hearing their full stories in just a moment. These are two remarkable people who have been through an enormous amount and who both, through no fault of their own, found themselves one day hitting rock bottom, out in civilian life with little or no support, debilitated and paralysed by chronic pain and taking large amounts of dangerous painkilling drugs just to get by. You may find parts of their accounts distressing, but I would encourage you to continue because you'll be rewarded with a great story of empowerment and optimism. The pain management programme has given them their lives back and you will feel their positive energy as they recount drastically reducing the painkillers or dispensing with them entirely and regaining the confidence and optimism to look forward to productive and satisfying future lives. As Bernie says, the programme works and it's worth its weight in gold. If you are moved by Russ and Bernie's stories and can help in any way, I'd encourage you to follow the links in the notes to this podcast and get involved in the inspiring work that is being done for UK services veterans. Finally, thanks to Russ and Bernie for sharing such personal experiences and their time with us so generously. The first question is directed to Russ. Enjoy the podcast. Bernie and Russ, welcome to The Voice of Insurance. Thank you. you. So we're doing a podcast, you're both veterans, you both served in the armed forces. What sort of person were you like when you joined up? And, And when was that? I was very quiet, insecure, and the only thing that kept me going was the thought of joining the Royal Navy. So who do you always wanted to join? Probably from a young teenager, and I don't really know why. I had no real family history of the services at all. It's just something, well, I do know why, and it will sound crazy, but I had a week on a barge with an uncle, and it was just going from Groomsby to Hull, across the river, the River Humber, and I got hooked on the sea. You like being afloat? I liked being on the water. And how old were you when you joined up? I was 16 and a half when I joined. So you just left school? Yeah, I had a, a short summer job, November the 8th, 1977, signed and joined HMS Rally. And Bernie, what was your story? I worked in Lewis's department store in Liverpool, doing the same thing day in, day out. And I just realised I needed to do something more with my life. I just thought, this can't be it. And then one afternoon in my lunch hour, I went down to the careers office um, and I decided I was going to join up. I was initially wanting to be in the Navy, to follow my dad in his footsteps, and there was no one on the Navy desk. 
So the army guy was like, yeah, come so here. So sweet talked you into it. Yeah, absolutely. I'd never really thought about the military previous and I seen advert saying, here's Frank. <laughs> and I wanted to be Frank. I wanted to travel. I wanted to see a lot of the world. And yes, I did exactly that. Were you a bit older than what Russ was? Absolutely. I didn't join until I was 24. 24. So I'd already, you know, I'd had my own flat. I'd had a few different jobs. I'd been on a YTS scheme. So yeah, quite a varied experience until I was 24 and I decided that was me. What year was that when you first joined? I joined in November 77. Had a, a normal school life. Yeah, so back in 1977, quite a long time ago now. So what was it like? Coming from a, a North Lincolnshire village to just outside Plymouth in HMS Rally, it was poles apart. And the further we went down on the train, the more people we could see were doing exactly the same thing going to join. And then the meeting point was going over the Torpoint Ferry. Oh, there you go. And we were all there together for the first time, probably most of the classmates. And it was bizarre. Did you realise all the drawbacks, things like getting seasick? Were you okay? You had good sea legs? I had no problem with the seasickness or anything like that. The only time I did feel seasick was mainly due to alcohol. <laughs> but the training, though it was tough, it was what I wanted to do. And I found it... Not necessarily easy, but I didn't find it too difficult. What was your specialism? I was seamanship and a radar operator. How did you find out about radar? Were you always quite technical? Or? No, no. The careers officer who came to our school gave me two options initially, and it was to join as an artificer, which I couldn't even say at the time, never mind know what it was. And what is it? An artificer apprentice, it's between a general seaman and an officer. It's like a junior officer. If you right, know, okay. Uh, an apprenticeship. Or it was going into seamanship. And then in the seamanship branch, there were several different branches that you could go into. And I wanted to be a gunner. But when I got down to HMS Rally, and I don't mean any disrespect to any gunners out there, but they said, you're too intelligent to be a gunner. <laughs> and so my hearing was never great, so it wasn't sonar, so it was radar. Bernie, what about the Army? You're in the Army. This is probably 20 years later than Russ. You're a bit older. What happened? You had all basic training, and then which regiment do you end up joining? I joined in 1996. It took me a while to get in because I was underweight and short-sighted. And then finally, uh, November 96, headed off down to Pearbright. Did me basic training in Pearbright and then phase two training in Blackdown, training as a supply specialist, as it was called then. Basically a little bit like working in a B&Q on a massive, massive scale. So whatever the military need, you're going to be supplying that. So first posting, nine supply regiment, Chippenham in Wiltshire. Got there in January, deployed in the March, first tour of Bosnia. So it was a bit, oh my God, you know, can't believe I'm going away. I'm going to be away six months, seen quite long. In the end, that three years posting, I did three tours of Bosnia, back to back. Absolutely loved it, loved it. And it's the people, the people make it, the people that you meet along the way. I suppose because that's a war situation, you're supplying all the time. Is that you just Yeah, busy, yeah, busy, to busy. all the different units that are based out there. So you'll have units based in different locations around the Bosnian area. 
and all the issues will come into use. You then sort all the issues out and then obviously the equipment will start firing away to all the different locations for them to be able to resupply, you know, all their guys and gales and anything that they keep need. Fed, keep them Everything. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Bottles of water to nuts and bolts to ammunition, anything, anything. And what do you like most about being in the Navy, Russ? What was the best experience it got you into? Well, it's getting to see parts of the world that, as a small village boy, I wouldn't have even dreamt of. As Bernie's already hinted, it's the people, the crew. I spent quite a long time on one ship, HMS Eskimo, and the crew that we had there, it was only 270 of us, not a huge crew, but it really did feel like a family. Yes, we had tussles and things, but the camaraderie, it's beyond comprehension in some ways. We had terrific trips, but again, if you enjoy your trip, it's probably because of the people that you're with. So that's really the, the crux of it. The people that I served with, the majority were great people, and some of them I'm still very good friends with now. And I suppose there aren't that many radar people on, on each ship, and so you've got a responsibility, and obviously the gunners got their job. Indeed, yeah. And we had to work a watch system, and so you had to hand over to the next person so you make the handover as good as you can because you want them to make sure that their job's correct. And the same again, when you're coming on to watch, you need a good handover to make sure that you know what's going to be happening during your watch as well. So again, it was a continuous training and making sure that everybody understood what each person had to do and get on with it. Maybe being a sailor, you get to sail in some beautiful port and tie up in the harbour and then you know there's some parade or something you get to be part of and... Is it not so glamorous in the supply side, or did you still manage to have some fun, or you get postings that are, you know, enjoyable? Oh, without a doubt. You do a six-month tour of Bosnia, you still do get a bit of downtime. It's probably only one day a week that you don't work, so you just work flat out, do your jobs, and then come a Sunday, there could be a boat trip, sailing trips, trips down into the local town centre, all kinds like that. And the higher-up staff will make sure that there's always something going on so it's not just about being stuck on the base that you're on. I got to see and do absolute all kinds, and that's throughout my whole career. I do say myself, I've probably seen in the just under 16 years I saved, I've probably seen and done more than some people who've done a full 22 years. I'd volunteer for anything, and I'd go anywhere. I just absolutely loved it. And seeing the scenery around you, some of these places are absolute stunning. As much as the war-torn and everything else, there's still some beauty to see and do as you are there serving. Absolutely. And what would you find the hardest thing about serving? Has it been away? or? No, I absolutely loved being away. I think for me, that's one of the reasons why I joined up. I wanted to go away and I wanted to see and do as much as I possibly could. So if I was asked to go anywhere, then I didn't mind going whatsoever. You know, I'd probably be there front of the queue with my hand up saying, please, 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 you know, send me. It, I loved it. I lived for two years in Cyprus. I've, I've lived throughout Cyprus, Germany, Northern Ireland. So, yeah, that's it for me, being away. Being away was the best. What did you find the hardest, Russ? Uh, I, I think some of the training exercise that we did uh, down at Portland where we had up to 10 days completely testing everything about the ship and the crew and having to do your normal action station watch, but then 
your off-watch action station, where I was a radar operator for my normal action stations, but in my off-watch, I was having to hand shells to the gunners because everybody had to muck in. But you were doing this for 10 days constant, and you had people on the ship that were examining every single aspect of the ship and the crew, and you could go like for 18 hours with no sleep, and you're six hours off time, you fed, you showered, you ate, you tried to get some rest as well. So the Portland exercise at times were the toughest. I didn't see any actual action, so I, I can't say that I did any sort of Bosnia or anything like that. So it was drills. It was long hours doing drills. That was our job, you know, don't get me wrong, but it really did take it out of you because they were pushing you to your limits. They were pushing every part of the ship to its limits, the firepower, the steering, the accuracy of everything. And yes, the crew felt it because of the, the, the long hours that we had. Because you're being slammed around. Indeed, yeah. At full speed as well and everything. We used to do what we call a, a RAS, a replenishment at sea. And doing that, doing a zigzag pattern as avoidance for submarines and such like, was quite a feat. And we were often on the upper deck, literally with the Being resupplied. Being resupplied with either fuel or normal general supplies with pieces of rope going between two ships and manpower having to handle these things. That could be quite hairy. You handled the emotional side of it fine. Were you okay being away from home and sort of loved ones and all that kind of stuff? Again, like Bernie, I wanted to go away. I wanted to see places. I wanted to do things. It was nice to come home and tell the family and friends about what I'd been doing. But yeah, I was always ready for going back to the ships and, and getting out there. So it sounds like you can look back really fondly on the time that you had in the services, that you got a lot out of it. You had a good experience. You'd be able to recommend that to anybody. Absolutely. My biggest regret was having my accident and it cut my career far too short. So yeah, that was a huge thing in my life. But prior to that, yeah, I absolutely loved it. Bernie, you might have a different view. Yeah, don't get me wrong. I will never take away all the places I've been, the people I've met and everything else. I went to Northern Ireland for the second time in 2010 and that was the worst posting they ever had. And that was my downfall. I went through the worst time in my life to the point where I wanted to end, well, I've tried to end my life and it broke me. It broke me as a person, an individual and the military to me, I gave up on it in a sense because it was like they gave up on me. And that was down to one individual and unfortunately these things do happen the military might say they don't, but they certainly do. So that was my mental health shot. Was that what you felt were being bullied or was it that kind of thing? Absolutely. But the military will tell you that doesn't happen. It certainly does when you don't want to give up your life for no reason at all. There has to be reasons. And that was my reason. I was stuck in Ireland. I didn't know anybody. Although there was still military people around me. I didn't really have very close friends because I'd not been there that long. I didn't know who to speak to. Yeah, it was quite bad for me. That was near the end of your 16-year period, wasn't it? You'd been in 14 years by then. Yeah. A lot of military people will always turn around and say to you, you don't get to like a 12-year point and then decide just to pack it in. You're either there for a certain amount of time or you're there for your 22. My plan was 
I was doing my 22. And unfortunately, because of what happened, I realised the army was not for me no more. Was that also about the time when you started to, to notice that things weren't right with your body anymore or that you'd noticed that the pain was starting? To be honest, the pain was already there. It was a case of trying to get through each day, trying just to survive each day in the military without going to the doctors all the time. Do you think it's the culture that you don't want to admit that you're weak? Absolutely, without a shadow of a doubt, and especially being a female as well. You know, one of the things, whilst I was going through big basic training, if you'd ever sort of turn around and said, oh, my arm's killing me, me, stop malingering, stop malingering, get on with it. And that's all it was. So that's why a lot of military personnel, Army, Navy or Air Force, that's exactly what you do. You crack on with it. And sometimes to a point where you can't crack on anymore. So do you think your pain problems started quite early and they were just compounding and compounding over that time? You were lifting heavy loads all the time. Absolutely. And you would never, very, very rare, being a female, would you ask for help? Because to us, it was a sign of weakness. So I would never be saying to private Adams or whatever, yeah, you know, or oh, can you just give us a hand? Because you didn't. Because it was like, well, you're in the army. You joined the army. You're the same as me. Whether you're male or female, very, very rare did they ask for help. Whilst I was going through basic training, and this is nothing against the three corporals that I had, only jokingly sat on top of me. And that was three Haley Bailey corporals, probably about 15 stone each. And one of them actually had his ear defenders stuck in the back of his trousers. That's where they always used to keep them. And he was actually, his ear defenders were stuck there so I couldn't breathe. And then the next day I had to carry ammunition on a stretcher and then he had to go to PT. Jordan had PT lesson I had to pull out because my back was just absolutely killing me. But they didn't do it intentionally, so it weren't mentioned. It was just, she's done it while she's been doing PT. And that was the start of it for me. And I'm, that was 1997. So you were living with this? Absolutely. So when, when did you actually start to decide that you needed to seek help and kind of get over that fear of being seen as weak? And when did you first think, I need to do something about this? not until towards the end of my time. And I was like, you know, my back, it was in rag. I knew it was. Pain constant and everything else. My last posting was Colchester. So before I left there, I did go and get some scans and that, and I was under the physio and everything. But once you leave, it's a completely different story. You sign off, you're getting out, and that's you. The military, they don't want nothing to do with you. You're no use to them because you're not, like, on their books no more. So it's like, there you go, see you later, and that's it. I don't even remember having a final medical. So you come out into the big wide world and you go and see your civilian doctor and all they were prepared to do was give you tablets. And I suppose they're not even aware that your military veteran is likely to be someone they should probably treat slightly differently because they've had a different life. Yeah, absolutely. I was the one with my doctor that I registered with when I first left. I was the one who actually had to tell them what the code was for it to be annotated on my file to say that I was ex-military, you know, I'm now a veteran. So a lot of this, anything that's going on with you, 
can be down to your military service. And Russ, I suppose with you, you didn't have a gradual situation like Bernie where you're damaging your back over a long period of time and then ignoring it, not doing anything about it. With you, you know, you had something much more sudden and accidental, didn't you? Yes, on the summer of 81, and I honestly cannot remember what date it was at all. It's something that's blanked out of my mind. I was on leave on local roads and I had a head-on collision on my motorbike hitting a Datsun Cherry. So you remember the model of the car, yes? Well, yes, because I actually I actually knew the owners of it as well, which didn't help. But yeah, I had an accident and hit the main nerves in my neck on the roof line of the car and apparently literally flew 15 yards into a farmer's field because the farmer was ploughing it at some time. And the next thing I remember, I was in the ambulance and the couple who were an elderly couple they told the police that I'd admitted guilt in the ambulance, whereas I don't remember speaking because I was only just conscious. But that's another story. Is that sort of the end of your Navy career, really? It was indeed, yes. I was at home for a few weeks because local doctors didn't know really what was going on. We're talking 1981. No one could tell me if I would ever use my arm again. When I first had my accident, my right leg also, I lost feeling in that for 24 hours. Luckily, my leg came back okay. But my arm now, 41 years down the line, is still the same. And yes, that ended my career. I had to go down to HMS Nelson. They wanted to assess me in their own way. So I was actually working in the sick bay in the middle of Portsmouth on the switchboard so they could monitor me. And then later that year, getting towards, I think it was around November time, I then got rushed into R&H Hasler for suspected appendicitis. And six hours later, the surgeon had come round and told me that they'd removed a cancerous growth from my intestine, about six foot length of it. And they said that they couldn't say for sure, but they think that the trauma from the accident might have triggered this off. So you had all the luck. (laughs) Indeed, yes. And so the surgeon told me what had gone on and he went away. And I was, yes, yeah, I understand, yes. And as soon as he walked away, I just burst into tears. It all just hit me. Within a few short months, I'd nearly died twice. But with that, you've been all clear ever since that. They were able to get rid of that growth and and then... I've had no real follow-ups, but I've never needed to have have any follow-ups. I've had no discomfort, no pain in that way whatsoever. I had a bit of a scare a couple of years ago, but it was nothing to do with it whatsoever in the end. And so, yeah, all's good in that respect. So with your story, obviously you were in pain and you knew why. Did you try and get help for that? And obviously your time in the Navy came to end. Presumably were you discharged at that point? Yeah, my discharge date was my 21st birthday on April the 19th, 1982, of which around that time, obviously, it was the Falklands. I should have been going out there on HMS Antrim with my crew members. I came home feeling sorry for myself. And yeah, something that I didn't realise or even knew there was a thing for many years is that I'd been suffering from survivor's guilt. And to a degree, I still do. This year, especially being the 40th year anniversary, it's hit me hard again. But taking all of that to one side, the thing that's always been a constant and not necessarily a good constant is the constant pain in my left arm, literally from my shoulder down to my fingertips. And can you do much with your left arm? I can flex the elbow slightly and I can pull in from the shoulder to my chest. But when it comes to anything below the elbow... My hand is just there. That's where most of the pain is in my hand. But if someone put a knife through my hand, I wouldn't feel it. 
it's completely paralyzed to that point. And so I can honestly say since the summer of 1981, I've never had a full night's sleep because every time you move in bed, it's mainly because you're having to move because of the pain and you change a different position and it's painful just being in that position. So you have to move again. You asked about seeking help. I come from a, a small village in North Lincolnshire with GPs and they didn't really know or understand. I did get put onto a program in a hospital in London for a week to see if there was any chance of a, an operation to reverse the problems or anything like that. Even at that point, they said it was too long after the accident to do anything that way. And so I ended up actually teaching some of the other people at the hospital how to do things that I'd learned myself. So, but most of your pain management was really about taking pills. Indeed, for many, many years. And the more it went and on... these are opioid pills that we all know are not good for you. Yes. Um, and the more time went on, the stronger the doses were getting because the effect seemed to be lost or if it was there at all. And more and more of them, different types, different strengths, all sorts of things. And I didn't want to do that, but I had no alternative. The doctors or surgeons or anyone could give me no alternative at that time. So we've hit rock bottom now, haven't we? Both of you in your stories at this point. When did you find out about the pain management program from the Soldiers Charity? It seems that the problem with a lot of these things is that no one knows that they're there. And obviously that's part of this podcast, we want to raise the awareness of this existing. How did you find out about yeah, Bernie? Yeah, absolutely. Mine was through another veteran from Liverpool. He'd actually been and done the course in London through the King Edward Hospital. And he had previously told me about it, but I didn't really look into it massively. And then it got to a point where I was like, I, I cannot deal with this pain no more. I have to do something. And you were out of the forces at that point? So oh, yeah, well, yeah, definitely. You've been out for a while. Yeah, I used to tip up into work and I'd go literally sit up against the radiator for the heat to get into me back to try and ease the pain in me back. Many a times people would walk in the office and there's me sat on the floor with me back up against. The pain was just so intense. and. I've been on loads of different kinds of tablets and it just it was getting to the point where it was like, what other tablets is there? What more can I take? What more can I do? You'd end up at the end of your tether and it's debilitating because you don't know where to go. You don't know what to do. And it was Paul, one of the other veterans, Navy veteran, I should say, he'd been down to London, been on the course and everything else. And I thought, I've got to try and see how I go about this. I read up on it and it turned out and says, you have to speak to your doctor to get a referral from your doctor. Now, the first doctor I spoke to, he was like, well, you don't really need to, you know, because we're giving you tablets. And I was like, no, I'm asking you to refer me. I need and want to be referred because to me, these were the specialists. That's all I wanted. So probably both of you have been in the general practice, doesn't really understand... No, pain, not, without pain management, not at all. it's tablets, basically. That's yeah. their answer. Yeah. GPs are general practitioners. They know a little bit about lots of different things, but nothing specific. And in our cases, and, and lots of the veterans that we're talking about the, who do these courses, Bernie's case is very different to mine, and it's very specific to us. But when you have a team of specialists that we had at the King Edward VII Hospital, even though we were all different, they could talk to us in a way that 
we believed that they understood our case. For me, finding out about them, it was about six years ago. This was a point of rock bottom of my life. I had to resign from a job because they had no mental health assistance whatsoever. I was put in a job that I didn't understand very well and, and lack of training, basically. I was also going through a separation stroke divorce at the time, different location, rock bottom. And then I knew after three days of doing literally nothing, sitting on a sofa, TV on, not having a clue what was on there, I knew I had to do something. I approached Safa. What is Safa? Safa, tri-services charity, who, in my case, they were like the central hub of getting help. They put it out to other service charities, including the Royal Navy Benevolent Trust, who gave me one financial help because I needed it at the time, but they also gave me then a list of other charities that might help me and said, whatever you do, work through it in whatever way you want, but at least approach some of them. I then came across the Poppy Factory and then also Help for Heroes. I spent some time with Help for Heroes, and it was then an ex-army medic. He approached me about pain management and what I knew about it, and I said absolutely nothing. And he then put me on to the King Edward Seventh Hospital. He wrote a letter to my GP on my behalf, and then obviously I went to my GP as well. And he was a little bit more helpful than Bernard's GP in that he wanted to try and help. He didn't know how to before this point. And so the referral went through a couple of trips down to London to see them, to be interviewed by the hospital, to see if we were suitable candidates. And I was fortunate to, to be suitable. The way that they were talking, I don't know how the suitability worked, whether it was just bonkers enough or what it was, I'm not quite sure. But So... Before the listeners, explain to us how it works. You didn't know what you were letting yourself in for, really, other than it had been recommended. And how does it work? Because I can see in both of you remarkable results. You've got smiles on your faces. You seem pretty normal. You don't seem like you're in terrible agony to me. I'm sure you've, you've got your pain there, but you're managing it. So tell us about it. How does it work? Because obviously it's not something that cures the source of your pain, does it? Oh, absolutely not. And that's something that they'll tell you. You know, they're not there to cure your pain. They're there to help you manage your day-to-day -day life with pain and that's the difference and it's not about popping whatever tablet you can it's about trying all different kinds of therapies treatments and everything that will best help you even down to breathing exercises as i'm sat here now i've got a pain in my back so i can sit here and as much as i'm looking at you with a smile on my face that pain's there and I can just be sitting here and I could be thinking of somewhere nice where it could be like quite relaxing and that'll just ease you. The way they teach you, it's all about your central nervous system. Your central nervous system is everything to do with your pain. I never knew nothing about this before and, and now I know about it. It's the information that they give you. It's not about curing you, it's about the information they give you. And you're being offered lots of different techniques and taught lots of different techniques. And then obviously some things work for some people and some things don't work Absolutely. for others. But you pick your own kind of palette of these things and you've got a yeah, selection we, we had, of things. We had three people who were taking the sessions. We had to do it by a Zoom, which made it quite interesting, but it was fine. It was absolutely fine. You had somebody was talking about physiotherapy, but not the normal physiotherapy where they try and push you through the pain. This therapy was teaching you 
that less is more. Yeah. So as soon as you start to feel any discomfort or pain, you stop at that point. Because as Bernie said, you're trying to train your central core to not recognize the pain, to lose the feeling of pain. So if you inflict pain upon yourself by exercising, that's doing the opposite. So you've got to train your body to relax and only exercise as much as you feel you need to or want to. For me, the biggest turning point was talking to, her name escapes me, but she was talking about the medication. We all had told them what medications we were on and what strengths and how often and all the rest of it. And she said, well, have you ever thought about not taking them? I said, oh, that's a scary thought. And he said, have a word with your GP. He said, I'm not telling you that's what you need to do or want to do. Just have a word with your GP and just try and taper it off. And if it gets too much for you, you go back onto it. But if you can cope without it, then all to the good. You're not putting things into your body. So with my GP and their backing, they again wrote to my GP saying what we'd planned to do. It took about three months because I was on several different tablets and several quite high-strength ones too. But within three months, I'd tapered it off to taking nothing, no pain tablets whatsoever. And I still like that now. I don't take anything for it. And do you notice the difference? The difference is that I'm now not filling my body with medications. I don't feel any better or worse. But again, with all the other training that we did with the mind and with the thoughtfulness and, and all the other breathing exercises, especially. Presumably with all these painkillers, you're sort of groggy, half drunk, or you can't think straight. Now you, at least you can think straight. I think there is an element of that. It wasn't too bad for me. It's just knowing that I'm not filling my body with things that could have these side effects. And yes, I do still have the pain and it does still spike. But I now do the breathing exercises to take that spike away. My other half has got very warm hands and her healing hands rest on my shoulder and it's almost instant relief, you know, but I'm not taking the drugs. And that is a huge thing for me. And did you manage to go completely sort of drug free? No, with the help of Suzanne and Claire and Yanni, they were the three specialists yeah, Suzanne, it, at yeah. the hospital. And with the help of them and... I can't remember which one's which, but the one who is the nurse practitioner, which I think is Clay, she's the one who I told her about the medication I was on, which one of them was gabapentin, and I was on 1,800 milligrams a day, and they weren't doing nothing for me. But to me, it was, well, you take them because of your pain. But because I've been on them for that amount of time, they just weren't doing nothing. And I did explain this to her. And I said, you know, I said, I, I would love nothing more than to not have to take that amount of tablets because I'm, I'm on other tablets because of my mental health. With taking them, I then have to take Lansoprazone, which stop any tablets from affecting your stomach. I just think, well, you're taking one for the other for the other. And I didn't want that. Now, I actually only take one 300 milligram a day. So really way down. Without a shadow of a doubt. Back in 2018, the last employment I was in, I would be rattling, and I mean rattling, trying to get through a 12-hour shift. I'd probably take more tablets than what I should have been taking just to get through them 12-hour shifts, and that was days and nights. That can never be a good thing. So I did realise that something had to be done. But as Russ turned out and said, the exercises, I've been to quite a few physios and 
all the physios seem to say is, oh, well, you know, you need to exercise more. So if you do 10 sets of this and then 10 sets of that, and that's completely not what the pain management program does. We go through lessons when you first meet of the morning. You know, the first thing will be that obviously the exercises, and these would be exercises that made you feel good, not knackered yet, and then put you out for the day because you've probably overdone it, so your back had kicked off and started again. So for me, it was amazing, to be honest. And I can actually say that it was amazing to like think, wow, this actually does work. Yeah. How's it changed your life? I don't take nowhere near the amount of tablets. I'm actually getting up in the morning. I will have a shower. I will get ready because I could go days without getting a wash, even brushing my teeth. Sometimes I just didn't even have it in me because the pain was sometimes so unbearable that I thought the best thing was to just lie there and then take the tablet as and when I was supposed to take them. Not no more, no. I like to get out. I've still got a life. I'm only young. I know it's an early birthday, like, but I'm still only young. I've got a lot of life left in me, and I do believe I've got a hell of a lot to give. I want to get back into employment. That is my main goal is to get back into employment. This is the longest I've ever been unemployed for. But who takes you on if you can't manage the pain that you're in or you're popping tablets constantly? Because it's the basics, isn't it? Absolutely. It's about being in a better space, mentally, physically, your well-being. And there's no point someone saying, oh, I'd love to teach you lots of new skills so you can be more employable in this area or that area, but... If they haven't helped you manage your pain, you're not going to get past square one, are you? No, of course not. Of course. Because pain's so fundamental. It's everyday life. That's one of the things I think that a lot of people don't understand. Yet we can walk around with smiles on our faces. You don't know what's going on inside. The same with anybody, really. But what I'm saying is you can be in pain, but you can be managing it so much better without popping these tablets. I will sit there sometimes, whether I'm driving my car, I'm on a train or I'm just walking. And as I'm walking, I may just sort of like move my hips from side to side. That's just giving me back a little bit so that it's not just one way. They give us back the control. Yeah. They taught us how to control ourselves. Managing. Yeah. And you're the manager. management. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. You are now managing your body. Not your body managing you. And that is a massive, massive thing. So now you're talking about the future. You're talking about your plans. Is, is that what it's really been the biggest gift of this? The pain management program is a huge part of that, along with other help that I had from other service charities. But if you knew me six years ago before I came across any of this, I am such a better person than I was. My confidence has grown. I've never been a confident person but my confidence has grown. I run my own sort of hobby stroke business. That's a framing and mounting business. Yeah, basically mounting and framing memorabilia. Thank you very much. We'll make sure we put a link to your business on the notes. Please do. But even doing that, remembering my left arm is paralyzed, for me to do the the things that I do literally one-handed, if anyone does go onto my Facebook page and see some of the things that I do, I hope that they'll actually be in awe of what I can do because... 
doing things like that, again, the pain is still there. And to a degree, I work through it to get the end result. But again, because of the training that we had through the pain management program, if it's getting too much, I now know I have to stop. I just take myself away, just sit down for a few minutes, I relax, I think about other things. And these are all things that the pain management course did teach us. I honestly can't thank that team enough because after 41 years of suffering in silence, in the last five or six years, I'm still suffering, but in a controlled manner. And the control is me. And that's the hugest difference that anyone can make. So what advice would you give to anyone who's in pain? I mean, they need to find out about pain management, I presume is what you'd tell them. Yeah. I mean, again, we can tell them who it is and, and where they are, and we can tell them to go to their own GPs and get that referral. I'm more than happy to give anybody any information that they need to get onto that course, do it because it will help. It really does truly help. And any of our listeners here, what would you say about the Soldiers Charity? This sounds like a charity that's really doing something incredibly valuable to you and so many other veterans. Oh, yeah, without a shadow of a doubt. I mean, as we know, you don't get nothing for free in this life, you know. So they obviously do a lot of fundraising and everything to be able to help and support veterans. And they're the ones who actually pay for us to be able to go on this course. We don't know the costs. We don't know how much it is. But whatever it is, it sounds like it's worth it. Oh, yeah. And whatever it is, it's worth its weight in gold because it does actually work. Don't get me wrong. There's loads of charities out there, military charities. Do you do what it says on the tin? This one certainly does, without a shadow of a doubt. To me, that says everything. And when you've got people, you know, we're here today to do a podcast, to obviously let people know about it, I wouldn't come here and I wouldn't be not that I'm selling it, but I wouldn't be telling you about it if it didn't do what it's supposed to do. It works. It works for me 100%. I know I'm different because of being on that course. We were chatting before we recorded this podcast in London. You've been doing what anyone visiting London would be doing. You've been Absolutely. running around the city for a couple of days, haven't you? Absolutely. You know, I still take my medication that I need to for other things, not my pain management. Still on them. But for me, I am able now to get out a lot more. I can get out for longer. It's got to be more beneficial to my life. It is more beneficial for my life. I don't want to spend my life stuck in away from society. I shouldn't have to, but I don't have to now. What are your plans for the future? I mean, when you do get a job, I'm, I'm sure you will get a job. It's been very employable to me, Bernie. You've got a lot of charisma and you're a good communicator. So, what sort of job do you think you'd, you'd like to get? I love helping people. That has always been a thing with me. Whether that's something I look at going into, I'm not too sure. But I just like, all he ever wanted was to do me 22 years, come out, get myself a little job where I was happy as laddie and just crack on with your pension and everything else. It didn't quite work out that way. But all I'd want now is a job where I'm making a bit of a difference, but I'm making a difference to myself. And Russ, what's your ideal future? Well, in a way, it's trying to pay back the help that I've had from other charities as well as the pay management programme to the point where I'm midway through negotiating, starting to work for a charity run by an ex-Royal Navy veteran himself. But it's also getting 
other veterans to volunteer to do work. And I'm trying to get onto the team again with one of the other charities that helped me with other aspects, the Poppy Factory. They're looking at trying to get funding for me to do certain exams to be an essential part of the team. And so with other things that I'm doing, it's now paying back. I'm fully employed at the moment. People are great. The job's okay itself. It's the way that the central planning people work our shifts that's really not conducive to the way that Bernie and I have been taught that, you know, we have routines and we follow. It just doesn't work for me at the moment. So I'm looking for alternatives. But if I can then help other veterans in whatever way I can, that's the route that I'm trying to take at the moment. Myself and my partner, we run a veterans breakfast club. We're both part of the popular field fundraising side of things. And like I say, I'm trying to get into this charity work as well. I think we've come to the end of our time. I've asked most of my questions. I just wanted to thank you, first of all, for your service, military service. I think we take our peace for granted, don't we, and, until it's threatened. And then we, we sh- we've spent more on the military in the last few years. But more importantly, I'd, I'd like to thank you for your time and for your generosity that you've shown to everybody listening to share your stories with us. You didn't have to do that. That was very kind of you. And I really appreciate it. I think both Bernie and I think that if we can get one more person on that course that needs it, then we've done what we can. Yeah, to change somebody else's life and give them a purpose in life. They can crack on and do whatever it is they want to do with them tools, but they have to go through that course. And I'm sure anyone who goes on that course will get enough from it for them to be able to get on that path to recovery. That's fantastic. That's a really good way to end. Thank you so much, both of you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Mark. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this programme. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. The Voice of Insurance podcast is produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling enterprise-scale underwriting through a single pane of glass. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com. <laughs>